Welcome to the Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas. Hi, I'm Balaam Usitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Today, we are excited to be joined by Brad Sverluga, co-founder of and partner in Primary Venture Partners, a fund based in New York City that focuses on seed stage investing in the B2B software application space. Brad will share some of his insights into the world of venture capital and in starting and growing his VC business. But before we begin, we'd like to share with you that our podcast is brought to you in part by the law firm of Phillips Lytle LLP. This is a sponsorship that makes a lot of sense to us. Bela, you know this firm well, don't you? I sure do. I have worked with the key entrepreneurship partners at Phillips Lytle for over 20 years. Their attorneys take an entrepreneurial approach to legal matters, and they have a long history of success with startups. We thank Phillips Lytle for their support of the entrepreneurial community and the sponsorship of this podcast, The Unconventional Path. Now, Bela, there's some history between you and Brad, isn't there? Do you want to share a little bit with our listeners before we go right to the interview? Sure, Mike. That's a good idea. Brad, Russ Howard, and I co-founded High Peaks Venture Partners. This was a seed and early stage venture capital fund that focused on investing in upstate New York. After seven years of investing, we came to the conclusion that we needed to expand our geographic investing territory. This precipitated in the migration of High Peaks to New York City and the eventual rebranding to Primary Ventures. I was not interested in relocating to New York City, and it was around this time I left High Peaks and became Dean of the School of Management at Union Graduate College. Thanks, Bela. So with that, let's move to the interview with Brad Sverluga. Hello, listeners. Today, I'm here with Brad Sverluga. He is the founder and general partner of Primary Ventures, a venture capital firm located in New York City. Welcome to the show, Brad. Thanks, Bela. So, Brad, if you're at a uh, social event and uh, you get introduced to somebody and that person asks you the following question, oh, nice to meet you, Brad. What do you do for a living? How do you answer that question? Depends on a, a little bit about what I know about the person asking, but the most common answer is I have a small finance business <laughs> and then I try to move on. Okay. And if they're, and if they sort of want to probe, Oh, well, what do you mean by a small finance business? Uh, I will, I will get to, I, I am a partner in a venture capital firm early stage. Um, but I try to, I, I try to dodge that until I really decide I want to get to know somebody because being a venture capitalist is something that comes with a lot of baggage and assumptions, uh, and it can, and it can at times be easier not to go down that path. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but let's just for our listeners who may not be familiar with what venture capital is, can you, can you give us the, uh, three sentence elevator pitch on what a venture capital firm does? Yeah, so we we work with uh, startup companies, almost always technology companies, and uh, we provide them with the capital that they need to get their business started and rolling. Uh, and then importantly, we do a lot of advisory work to help them with that process of, of really getting through the first two or three years of their life. Okay, so you guys invest in sort of uh, companies at their beginning, or close to the beginning of the company. 
Yeah, it, it would be unusual for us to invest in something that's more than two years old. And at times, in fact, we're I think we're probably on the verge of investing in something right now that was conceived of roughly around, you know, 90 days ago. Yep. Yep. So it can be pretty darn raw. Right. Right. And uh, so uh, what's success for a business like yours? So we uh, we invest capital into companies, and that capital comes from people, institutions who invest in us. Um, those the, the term of art for that group of people is limited partners. They are partners in our firm at some level, but on a limited basis, just financially. Um, and our job is to try to return to them, you know, two and a half, three times their money, or better over a period of time. And at the end of the day, uh, success in this business is defined only by, by that. Your ability to generate returns for your limited partners is is your ticket to staying in, in business. Because these are, be they high net worth individuals or uh, university endowments or state pension funds, or there's a whole bunch of different types of, of groups that invest, they all frankly have easier, simpler, safer options than investing in venture capital. And so when they do take the risk, because it's awfully risky, they need to have expectations of generating pretty superior returns. Yeah. So you started this business. um, And so where did you get the entrepreneurial bug from? Um, I was not somebody who had a you know, I don't come from parents who were entrepreneurs, um, but I've almost always been somebody who was kind of, you know, thinking of things on the side and or thinking of better ways to, to run things. Um, you know, I'm one of those people who I can't walk into a convenience store without thinking about like, gee, they'd probably sell more chips if they moved them from here to there. Um, And so my brain works that way naturally and always has in reaction to businesses and situations that I see, but I have never been what I'd call a kind of core idea guy, somebody who has, ideas for new businesses at a really, really rapid pace. My partner and co-founder Ben Sun is like a pathological idea guy. He can't, I tell people all the time, he has more good new startup ideas in every shower he takes that I have in a month. Uh, and I think that's probably, you know, genuinely true. Um, so, you know, I've always, I've always been a, somebody who wants to think about tinkering and improving things, uh, and so venture capital is sort of a perfect place to do that. I get to be around these people who have these amazing ideas and I get to partner with them and help them tinker and improve. So was there a, a moment in your, uh, well, let's go back a little further. Uh, you grew up where? Uh, I grew up in Situate outside of Boston on the, on the coast. Okay. And uh, went to college? I went to college at, at Williams College uh, on the far western edge of Massachusetts, studied economics, and from there uh, went into strategy consulting um, back in Boston and spent some time overseas doing that as well. I, I notably um, 
when I was a senior, a couple of good friends of mine had started a company. I graduated from college in 1995, so the internet was like just becoming a thing, and barely. Um, you know, I used a browser for the first time my senior year, and uh, a couple of friends had started what became an early, very successful internet business called Tripod, and they asked me to, you know, my first year out of Williams to join them and be the employee number one there. And I really didn't even consider it seriously for a nanosecond because I was like on a path, a very predictable path towards management consulting. And that was going to pay me well and be interesting in a predictable way. Um, and that was a really bad idea because those guys made a ton of money and, and, and launched their own careers very, very successfully. But that sort of tells you something about the degree to which I wasn't out of the gates, like wired to be a founder. Right, right. And and then, so when did the light sort of go off to say, hey, I want to start a venture capital business? Um, so I got into the venture business in the, um, like five minutes before the bubble burst uh, in early 2000. Um, and I saw the lab, and I, and I got into the venture business because I had a friend who, uh, had started a venture firm and this was back in you know he started that firm in 1997 like in the kind of heat of the bubble and uh he then asked me to come and join him and when he asked me to come and join him i had been uh in strategy consulting for about four and a half years and it had become pretty clear to me that it was not the thing for me it was you know i was working with clients like merck and coca-cola and like huge enterprises and and the work was really intellectually engaging and the problem solving part of it was fun. But these places were so big and slow as as they should be, given the nature of their scale. Um, and it was just always so far removed from where the rubber was really meeting the road. And I wanted to I wanted to figure out a path that was closer to where the rubber met the road. And as I learned more about venture from talking to my friend, Matt, um, who today is a partner at Bain Capital Ventures. He's based in New York. He, uh, it, it just became clear to me that the venture would offer the kind of intellectual variety of a lot of different things in the same way that consulting does when you might be working on two or three projects at a time. Um, but when you're working with like five person or 15 or even 50 person companies, you literally can walk into a conference room, have a meeting with a group of people, and walk out of the room and the business fundamentally changed direction. And that was never going to happen with Coca-Cola or Merck. And whether or not I was going to be the person who had the idea that changed the direction, I, that's not the important thing. Like being around that degree of dynamism and change and, and excitement was, that's what got me excited. So, so, um, and then the, the firm that I had originally joined had a, what I would call a, a bubble era strategy that was not long-term durable. Um, and I wanted to stay in the business and, uh, you know, I met this guy who had been running the incubator program and doing a lot of tech transfer stuff over at RPI, a guy by the name of Baylor Musitz. And, uh, you know, he and I, and one, one other guy, Wes Howard, uh, said, Hey, let's, let's start something ourselves and see what we can't do. And so that was my, I've, I've co-founded two firms uh, and that with, with you, our dear host, High Peaks Venture Partners was number one. Yeah. 
And uh, so one question that a lot of people, a lot of our listeners uh, struggle with, I think, is, you know, coming out of college, should I dive right into starting my business uh, or should I go get some experience like you did, right? Go work in consulting or maybe work for a larger company, uh, maybe get a job in that industry you're interested in and then blaze out on your own. What advice do you give entrepreneurs in, from that perspective? Uh, I tell people that if you have an idea that keeps you up at night that you can't imagine not pursuing, then that's the answer to when should I do this and when should I start something. Um, there is nothing more important than the purity of the passion and conviction that comes with you know, the, the man or woman who had the idea and they just they wake up in a cold sweat thinking about it. Um, and everything that you lack in experience and maturity and whatever, that can all be solved for and hired for. Uh, and, you know, we've got all the Mark Zuckerberg and, and Bill Gates and Michael Dell examples in the world if you don't have to have long careers doing anything yet. Um, now, there's a lot of other people who say, you know, I want to. I want to start something. I know I want to be an entrepreneur. I don't know what. If you are in the don't know what camp, then I would say go get some real world experience because I think a, a really bad box to come out of is the, all I know is I want to be an entrepreneur. I don't have very much experience in the real world, but I'm going to find a buddy and we're going to sit by a whiteboard and keep throwing stuff up there until we come up with something good. Those those businesses lack the kind of purity of the idea and the authenticity. And, and those things are incredibly, incredibly important, not just for like keeping your own energy going through what is going to be a gut wrenchingly miserable experience at many, many, many moments. Um, but they also are critical to your credibility in the marketplace. Certainly, certainly if you're selling to businesses, if this is a kind of, made up idea that you don't have a lot of experience and credibility driving and a lot of authentic authentic conviction about why you're doing it that's going to come through to customers and they're not going to get as excited about you so in that instance i would say go you know go get some relevant real world experience first yeah that's good advice that's good advice i think a lot of people struggle with that uh they they sort of have this entrepreneurial thing floating around in their brain and and they don't know quite what what to do um, so let me ask you another question. Uh, unlike most companies, uh, where, uh, their product is billable hours, right? You're a consulting business, it's billable hours, uh, or you're a product or service company, you're selling something in the venture capital business. What are you selling? What's your product? In the simplest sense, I sell capital and I sell capital in exchange for equity. So I buy a piece of every company that I invest in. And so I might put a million dollars into the business, your business, and we negotiate a price for that. And I might walk away after that transaction, I might own 15% of your business. Right, right. Um, and so the competition in the industry is around, well, you know, capital, particularly today, we're sitting here in, in Q1 of 2020 and the market is super super hot there's a lot of capital um so good founders have a lot of choice 
And so then it becomes, well, what else comes with your capital? All money is green. And what else do you do? And so, you know, firms differentiate themselves in a lot of different ways. Um, and, and it's the, what else comes with the capital is the critical thing to, you know, you have to, you have to win the best op- opportunities. All the best founders have options for where they raise capital from. And so that's the rest of your product. Yes. And the adventure firms take wildly different approaches to that. Yeah. So I, I think what I just heard you say what, what was that uh, everyone's money is a commodity. And so that in order for you to get the best customers, i.e. people that you can invest in, you have to figure out a way to differentiate your firm and your product so that it adds additional value besides just the capital. A hundred percent. Okay. So as you think about that, you know, what were the big challenges for you to sort of sort through that and, and, and understand how can I make my business most attractive to my customers? Because you're, in essence, your customers are the, are the entrepreneurs who are looking for capital, right? So. Yeah, I've got, I've got customers on both sides of me. I've got, I've got to be able to raise money from investors right. who believe in me and my business plan. Um, <clears throat> but they're the equivalent of me investing in a startup where I then believe that startup has to be able to go and sell software right. or, or sign up consumer subscribers or whatever it is. And, so, that's, and that story, I think, is sort of related, <laughs> right? It has to yeah, ring absolutely. true on both sides of that equation. Exactly, exactly. So um, in the earlier part of my career in the venture business, um, the there was dramatically less capital in the market. There were many, 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 many fewer firms. And being a venture capitalist was a lot easier. You, the The notion of having to like aggressively compete for deals and the way that people have to aggressively compete, we have to aggressively compete for deals today, was quite different. And and you know certainly when you and I were getting started with High Peaks, it, within the strategy that we had, the opportunities that presented themselves to us, we had time, and we could sort of assume that generally if we got to yes we would be able to buy equity in that company um and post financial crisis um and in the kind of tech boom that we've had post financial crisis that has changed dramatically and um but also you know primary unlike high peaks is you know we were we are focused on the new york city market and ecosystem there, which is a super, super, super competitive market. It's the second most competitive market in the country, certainly, and and probably one of the five most competitive markets in the world. And you mean competitive from an investment perspective? From an, yeah, for the the dollars that are chasing every good opportunity. Um, And so we have to make decisions quickly and we have to show up with a product that founders find compelling. And um, so when Ben and I got started, we we realized that the world was changing and getting more competitive. We believed that New York City was, it wasn't at the time, the second most important market in the country, but we thought it was going to be. Um, and we believed that there was a strategy to build, be built on going all in on that market. And, and if you if you limited yourself geographically as we've done, then you would enable things from a product standpoint and from a, you know, how you deliver your offering to the market standpoint. You couldn't do if you were trying to simultaneously serve and be a great partner to founders in 
San Francisco and Boston and Austin, Texas and Seattle and New York. And there's certain things that just are not geographically extensible. And we said, hey, let's let's make a sacrifice by not looking at deals in all of those other markets, but in doing so, create opportunity around what our product can look like and how it can act. And so for us, when we when we pitch founders in New York City now, we we say a couple of things. Number one, um, everything we do is here. And so we've got everything we do to kind of build networks that might be supportive to you and helpful to you as you grow your company. And a lot of that's around who you're going to hire and who you're going to have as advisors to the business um, and who you're going to pull in to help solve problems along the way. All of those people are going to be nearby. Uh, and all of our work to develop networks is going to be relevant to you because it's going to be in your backyard. But secondly, and, and more importantly, um, we built a wildly disproportionately large team as compared to our peers in the industry that's focused not on doing deals, but on, on what we call portfolio impact. And that is resources that are specifically tooled to address the challenges that, that founders, startup founders have in the first couple of years of their life. So what does that mean? It means we have you know, three people full time doing nothing but recruiting and, you know, building databases of candidates. And, and Ben and my charge to that recruiting team is, is we want to have a database of the top 10% of all talent across all functional areas in the tech community in New York City. We're not there yet. That's a hard thing to do. But when you limit yourself to New York City, you have a shot at it. If you say, I want to have, I want to know the top 10% of all you know, marketing demand gen, social media demand generation people in each of Boston, Austin, Seattle, like you have no chance. So geograph geography enables that. So we have a talent team. We've got a go-to-market team that is doing nothing but helping companies think about their go-to-market strategies and how to acquire their first customers and, and how to set up their organizations to do that and align incentives. Uh, and then we have strategic finance, which is about building the, the kind of financial foundation and business model stuff the right way from the get-go. But in the shortest form, if I sit down with, across from an entrepreneur and I've got like 10 seconds to make my pitch, I will say, you know, most of our competitors, most of the other people you're likely talking to, they probably have four or five person organizations. We have 18. And we're going to be at 20 or 21 by the end of this year. And we're in the same business and we're writing the same checks and we're buying the same equity. But what we're doing is investing a lot more in services and support that are going to have an impact on your ability to grow and succeed. And that generally, you know, when you're talking to a founder about, hey, I'm showing up with a cavalry rather than it's just me and I'm a nice guy and a pretty smart guy, like that tends to have an impact. Do you think do you think your competition is going to uh, copy some of this a strategy that you guys you and Ben have implemented? So there are people at the later stages who who were ahead of us on this, bigger firms um who do, you know, don't do as much kind of true startup stuff but are fan financing companies at later stages. Um, and they have just by 
by the result of their scale, they have more resources and they've been more willing to, to do it. And so Andreessen Horowitz, which is a relatively new firm in the business, um, dozen years old or so, they were one of the real pioneers on this. And they kind of threw their kitchen sink at, at their portfolio companies from a resources standpoint. And we took a lot of inspiration from that and said, gee, how can you do this in a, in a, as seed investors, which is what we are, much smaller firm, much fewer resources. Um, and so we've been trying to think of what are the clever hacks, but the, the, and the market has steadily shifted towards, you need to be doing something on this stuff. But the reality is it's really expensive to do it. You have to be willing to, you know, Ben and I have sacrificed a ton of current compensation because our, the economics of the venture business are you raise a you raise a fund and the revenue that you run the business of you take a fee off of that fund um and so your your revenue for your the company that runs the fund is directly proportional to the size of the fund and so if you're a small firm who's doing small early stage deals you just have less resources and the good news is that again and again and again, we see that our peers don't seem particularly comfortable or willing to make the sacrifice it would take um, to, to operate like we do. Now, some people do. There will probably be more if suddenly we're winning every single deal we want to win and, and dominating the market, people will copy. But it's, but it's hard to do. Yeah. yeah. And a lot, of people, a lot of people think we're crazy and just wasting money. Well, time will tell, right? Right. Right, because one of the one of the things I think you said early on is the performance of a venture fund is basically a, 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 an equation. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's yeah, and actually, when 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 people tell us we're crazy for doing it, um, as a as an entrepreneur, I'm like, okay, then we must be onto something, <laughs> right? Because if you're doing something obvious, um, then it's probably not that important. Excellent. So, so you are an entrepreneur deep, deep down inside. <laughs> I mean, I've started two businesses yeah. so that, you know, by definition I am. Yeah. yeah. But it's interesting because people don't, don't think about, I don't think uh, about, you know, where does a venture capital firm come from? They don't realize that. Yes, indeed. When you and I and, and Russ started uh, high peaks, we were going around with a business plan <laughs> and we were talking. Absolutely. We were talking to begging people for money. and begging. Yeah. Begging for money. That's a good word. Begging right. and, and cutting our cutting our salaries because we didn't have enough money and we thought we were going to run out of money and staring over the edge of the cliff and kind of probably all three of us thinking in our heart of hearts that it wasn't going to work out at one moment or another. And then you you get your breaks. I mean, I, I think people, people make assumptions all the time about, you know, venture capitalists not being entrepreneurs and, and it being a fundamentally different thing. And I think that you can't make a blanket statement like that. There's, there's venture capitalists who have started firms themselves from scratch and faced, you know, imminent death and demise. Right. And then there's people who, you know, graduated from business school and joined somebody else's firm and, and never had to worry about the payroll. Right. Uh, but when I sit across this table from a founder who's stressed out about running out of cash, I know exactly how they feel. Yes. You understand the importance of cash flow. Right. Yeah. Right. So uh, when you talk to, uh, again, I, I use the word customers, but uh, folks that, that you're trying to 
invest in them and buy a share of their company. Uh, what's their biggest sort of misunderstanding about the venture business? What What do you find you have to educate folks about the most? Um, I think most entrepreneurs don't understand the, um, frankly, the reality, the statistical realities of the startup world to begin with, let alone how that translates down in the venture business. And the, <clears throat> and the simplest piece of that is that almost all of these things fail. Like startups just, they just usually fail, period. And sometimes that's about the idea wasn't right. And sometimes that's about market timing. And sometimes that's about founder and the execution. But sometimes that's just about crappy luck and surprising exogenous things that happen that crush you. Um, but, but, you know, we now we'll look at about a thousand opportunities a year at primary now, all of them in, in and around the New York city market, just to give you a sense of the scale of, of how much stuff is going on out there. And what industries um, are they focused on? It's a range of, software, um, some kind of consumer internet businesses, healthcare, information technology around healthcare, um, some kind of connected hardware and internet of things stuff. We don't do like real hardcore life sciences stuff, medical devices, biotech, et cetera. Um, but sort of software and internet businesses broadly defined is, is our consideration set. And, um, so we'll look at a thousand things a year, you know, we'll probably 250 to 400 tops of those are things that we'll actually kind of dig in and do a little bit of work on at least. We'll make seven to 10 investments in a year. So you go from a thousand to 10, maybe. So we're talking 1%. And from that 1%, if, only half of them completely fail. We've done pretty well at, as an investor at this stage. Um, often you can expect that your, your total zero rate might be two thirds. Um, we seem to be doing better than that so far, but you know, it's been a good time in the market too in the last five years. So founders, you know, everybody believes if, if you're a great founder, you have an unshakable belief in what you're doing. And you're certain that you're going to succeed, even though you probably have cold sweats at night and you're freaked out that you're not. But, it, you know, you're doing this because you believe you will succeed. And um, so you end up with conversations with founders who don't understand how well we need to do when we win. Because if you run the math on, OK, my job is to deliver back to my li limited partners. You know, we're investing out of a hundred million dollar fund right now. we got to generate 300 million plus of return. And the math is that we take, you take that hundred million and you take like 15 or $20 million off the top goes to the costs of running the business. So now we're down to, let's say 80 to keep the math simple. Um, let's be generous and say it was only 90 to keep the math even simpler. If, if, you know, a third of the time we lose all our money, now we've gone from 90 to 60. If another third of the time we kind of maybe generate two times our money, 
Then we've taken 30 million and turned that into 60. So we need to, we need to come up with 300. The, uh, we've blown a lot of it to zero. We spent a bunch of it on fees. We've took, taken 30 and turned it into 60 and we got 30 left. And that 30 needs to, needs to come up with almost $300 million on its own. So when we win, we basically have to make 10 times our money. And so you'll talk to founders who say, gee, if, you know, but I, this is a sure path to like how you can make five times your money. Like, that's fantastic. Go find an angel, you know, an individual who has a different risk profile. If I don't, if I don't generate those returns for my limited partners, I'm out of business. Um, and so that's the thing that people don't understand. Like it's super hard. Most of it fails. Um, and when you win, you have to win super big. So when you make an investment, uh, you believe in your mind that you're going to get 10 X back on that investment. And otherwise we what's believe, the sense in making it right? There's no point in making it. In fact, I'd, I'd go even further. We won't, we won't do a deal unless we think that deal on its own can return the fund. So if we don't think, and that's not, we believe it will. It's, we believe based on this founder, this market opportunity, this product, that we have a line of sight, we got to squint a little bit to see it, but there's a line of sight towards the check we're writing today and maybe another check that we'll follow on with later. For our current $100 million fund, it could generate $100 million just to us. And we're typically going to own like 10, 15% of the company over time. So we're talking about, we have to believe this can become a, you know, 700 million, billion, billion and a half dollar value. Right, company. right. So, so small ideas don't line up with venture capital for that reason. Yeah, yeah. So that's really good insight, and, and I hope that'll be helpful to, to some of our listeners uh, to understand sort of the metrics you need to be able to meet in order to get the interest of a, of a venture fund to make an investment. Yeah, and it's important for, for your listeners to understand that having a kind of returns profile or a set of ambitions or whatever that don't align with us as venture capitalists in no way means it's not potentially a great business. Um, there's lots of great businesses that shouldn't. In fact, most most companies should go nowhere near venture capital. It's expensive stuff. You're selling me a part of your business. You're selling me a bunch of control over your business. Um, and if you can do without that, it's probably a good idea. Yeah, yeah. So you've started uh, two venture funds. You've done two startups uh, as venture funds. So what have been the biggest challenges for you as an entrepreneur? If you had a list of top three or top two, what would they be? Um, you know, you asked a question earlier about defining the product of who we are and what we do. Um, and I think it took me a decade almost of starting businesses in this market to fully internalize the importance of that. And, it, and the crazy thing is that I would sit around and, you know, talk to founders that we were working with about the critical importance of them having like super clear strategy and, and differentiation in the market and, and whatnot. Um, <laughs> but, um, when we started, when Ben and I started primary in a, in a, because of the necessity of the competitive environment. And frankly, because I think in many ways, Ben is a way better 
founder and, and product guy than I am, like we were pretty relentlessly focused on what are we going to stand for? How are we going to be different? How are we going to communicate that to the market? Um, and until we got that right, or at least kind of right, um, it's just been a struggle to stand out. And it's been a struggle attracting the best deals and winning the best deals has been hard. And even more so attracting the kinds of investors in a fund that you want, the, the people who are going to be the institutions that can invest large sums of capital and sort of stick with you for a long period of time. Um, so that clarity around product vision and who you are and what you stand for and why that's different, like that just applies to every business, whether you're a bakery or, or a venture capital firm. And I think that's especially, I think that's especially true in today's, you know, flat world where you have competitors, yeah. even if you have a bakery, you have competitors from all over. Because Amazon right. can get the stuff there in a day, <laughs> so exactly. uh, this notion exactly. of what you stand for, who you are, is exceptionally important in a competitive environment. And for most people, the world today is extremely more competitive than it was twenty years ago. Yeah, and who you and the, and the thing I left off that list is who you are trying to serve, and being unafraid of of eliminating huge categories of potential customers because you simply cannot be all things to all people. Um, and that's, that's as true for a venture capital firm as it is for a software company, as it is for, a, you know, you choose, you, you pick your e-commerce business focused on consumers. You have to, you know, J crew stands for something and that's very different than what H and M stands for. Uh, they know who they are. They know who they're selling to. Um, and we need to be, we need to be the same way. And it's scary sometimes to, to limit yourself by saying, we're not going to sell you know, for us. We're not going to, we're not going to try to sell our product to founders in Boston or Philadelphia, even which are nearby and would be temptingly easy to serve. Um, but when we tell people that when we sit down with a founder in New York and say, all we do is work with founders like you in this market, that speaks something to them that's very different than somebody that says even like we do things up and down the East Coast. Um, so that clarity is, is super, super important. The, the thing I was going to say, too, then it, it more recently, what's become a struggle is is scaling the organization. You know, when you and Russ and I were sitting around and, you know, we had one associate, we had an admin and. Um, you know, there were kind of the three co-CEOs managing at most two other people and everybody could sit around a lunch table super easily all the time. You know, we got 18 people now we will be 19 when two open recs are filled. We'll be over 20 by the end of the year. It's a very different organizational beast. Uh, and I've told people, you know, somewhere around getting to like 12, which was uh, about a, a little over a year ago, uh, I felt like I got a two by four upside the head, you know, with a couple of wake up calls around, you can't manage an organization that has a couple layers of reporting in certain places and where not everybody in the organization reports into me or Ben anymore. You can't manage it the same way you did when you were all super comfortably sitting around the table and you have to start thinking about like process and system. And I have to spend more time managing today by 
by tenfold than I did two years ago when I could spend almost all of my time doing. Right, right. Well, that growth is a challenge for most entrepreneurs, and um, they go through these various different uh, plateaus or levels where where their their responsibilities and their role can change drastically as they grow. Yep. So, Brad, uh, we've been chatting here now for almost 40 minutes, and I want to respect your time. Uh, is there any questions that I did not ask you that I should have? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a second and think about that. Um, yeah, the, the, I guess the quasi-obvious question would be, well, like, so where are we going and where are we trying to get to? Um, and I'll take the liberty of ask, answering it. Um, you know, Ben and I want to, what we wanted to do from the get-go was build something that was going to endure and survive well beyond whenever our careers in it end. You know, I want to be the, I want to be the co-founder who rides off into the sunset, leaving the business in the hands of people who are um, dramatically more qualified and capable of running it than, than I am whenever that day comes. Um, and to do that means you have to think about the business differently than the way a lot of people in this industry do, because this is historically, this is an industry that's like super individual driven and even great firms tend to be, they're kind of like, you know, the Davis cup tennis team or the Ryder cup golf team. You know, it's, it's the best from a big pool who are pooled and they kind of loosely they're loosely a team, but it's not really a, it's not like a basketball team passing the ball to each other and setting picks and stuff like that. And we try to operate much more like a basketball team or a soccer team, like much more fluidly integrated, but also building systems and teams and structures into our product that are not about me and are not about them or about whoever might be the next partner here because we want to build something you know, we would like to have, we don't want to have a 10 or 15 person partnership, but I think we'd like to have a five or six person partnership over the next five years. Uh, and to have in that group, people who clearly are going to be able to carry it for, for a long time. And I think thinking about it that way has been both challenging in terms of what that means we have to be doing in terms of developing people and, and stretching ourselves organizationally, but also liberating because it, it means that, you know, I literally sat in our weekly team meeting last week and was talking about, we were talking about a company that I had been on the board of for three years and three other people in our organization had something to report about what they had done in support of that company in the prior week. And I had no idea that any of it had happened until that point. And that was like a holy smoke, like just my heart swelled because I was like, we're doing something right here it's not i am no longer like the singular unit of delivery against the founders that i partner with uh and if i get hit by a bus tomorrow there's a whole organization that can step in and can continue to serve it so i I think we're on our way to somewhere but there's a lot more wood to chop that's for sure yeah yeah well brad uh i'd like to wrap this up uh as usual uh thank you very much for a very thoughtful and thought-provoking conversation uh, I have always found that to be one of your strengths. Uh, you really uh, get people to think about stuff. And I really appreciate you being on the show. My pleasure. Always uh, always fun to have an excuse to talk to you and uh, 
think about some of the old days and how they, they inspired the new days. So yeah. Thanks a lot. You betcha. Thanks, Brad. Yep. Bela, cool interview. Learned a lot. Thought it was great. Um, I thought it might be a good idea. Do you want to give a quick primer to our listeners about the different sources of capital for entrepreneurs, kind of angel versus seed versus VC? Sure. Let me try to do this quickly. There are lots of other podcasts and sources of information uh, that you can get a, a wealth of information about this from, but let me try to be brief. So here's what I always say. If you're an entrepreneur, the best way to raise money is by selling your product. That should be your number one focus. Now, there are some businesses where you need money and you need a significant amount of money before you can start selling your product. So there are a couple different sources. There's your friends and family. There's angel investors. Angel investors are uh, sometimes an individual, sometimes a loosely organized group of individuals. Oftentimes, they have been successful entrepreneurs themselves, and they will buy shares of stock in your company. Uh, And then there's venture capital. And venture capitalists are in the business of investing, and they will also buy shares of stock in your company. Now, one of the things to remember in the VC space is venture capital gets a lot of press. So you're always reading about VC funds in the news, and you're seeing VC funds making investments in in various different companies. They actually represent a very small percentage of the investing that goes on. And part of the reason for that is if you take money from a venture capitalist, if they buy part of your business, you are on a set of train tracks that's gonna take your company to some sort of exit. What I mean by exit is your company's either gonna be bought by somebody else or it's gonna go public because that's the fundamental mechanism uh, by which venture capitalists make money. So before you go down that road, you wanna make sure you understand the constraints that it's gonna give you. Uh, So that's quick. They're great ways of of capitalizing your business, particularly if you have such a business where you you need several million dollars before you can start selling your product. Fundamentally, the only game in town is venture capital. Uh, So it's a great industry in the United States. It works very well. Uh, It it, uh, grows a lot of successful businesses, uh, but it does have some uh, various different constraints you want to be aware of. Yeah. And even within the VC business, Bela, right, there's companies that focus on different stages of the life cycle. And right, one of the things that Brad talked about is he's in the seed stage, right? And that's kind of the earliest round of venture capital where they're really working with very new businesses, um, as opposed to some other companies that get involved only later, only after they have a viable product or only after they've had sales, right? There's, There's different stages that these companies can get involved in. Absolutely. So some venture capitalists focus only on one stage, uh, some focus on multiple stages, and some VC uh, firms focus on maybe only one or two industries, and some take a much broader focus on industries. So you got to figure out, you got to get yourself a good match, right? If you're going out to raise capital and you're looking for seed stage money, don't go knocking on the doors of a venture capitalist that invest in growth stage because there's a mismatch there. So you, you got to narrow it down. You're wasting. Yeah. You're wasting your time. You're wasting mm-hmm. your time. And the great news is all of these VCs have pretty good websites and you can check them out. They'll tell you what they do. Yeah. Great. So just a quick little primer into the world of entrepreneurial finance, um, because I think that'll help, that'll help some of the listeners make sense of what, of what Brad said, which is cool. And like you said, there's plenty of great sources on there and it's a really interesting topic and it's changing all the time. 
Uh, it's global, uh, and uh, it's something you read about a lot. If, one of the neat things that I like about teaching is you get a, a student when you're working with bachelor students that if you gave them um, the Wall Street Journal or, or Fortune or Business Week or whatever, and they would only understand a small percentage of the articles, right? And by the time, if you've done a good job educating them, they'll understand a, almost all of any issue of any business publication. They'll know the key terms. They'll know what's talking what it's talking about. And like you said, Venture capital is not a really big percentage of all the capital that flows in the U.S., but it gains an outsized amount of the headlines in the media. Uh, so it really does make sense to educate yourself a little bit on the process and, and the different players and, and what all these terms mean. So it's something that I enjoy teaching about and I enjoy learning about as, as well. The real focus here of my conversation with, with Brad uh, was this notion of, of how he built this business, because it is a business. You know, so he and I and, and Russ Howard started the, the first one and then he migrated into primary and sort of the way he thought about his business. And I think one of the cool things was he really understood that he what he sells to people in exchange for shares of stock is, is money, is capital. And money's probably the most basic commodity we have. So his money is just as green as anyone else's money. So how does he differentiate himself in a highly competitive marketplace? <clears throat> what that means is, even though there's lots of entrepreneurial uh, endeavors starting up within a, a market like New York City, uh, there are several of them, uh, a very few number each year, uh, maybe 50 or 60, uh, that that everybody wants to invest in because they have the right ingredients, right? They have the right people, they have the right idea, they have the right technology, et cetera. So it's very competitive with other venture capitalists trying to invest in those companies. So you can see Brad has thought a lot about how do I convince the entrepreneur that they should take an investment from me versus taking an investment from many other uh, venture capitalists that are out there. And so this is a dilemma all entrepreneurs have. How, how do I sell my product? How do I differentiate it in the marketplace? And I think uh, you know Brad and I discussed that quite a bit, and there's a lot of good lessons in that. So at High Peaks Ballet, you focused on a second-tier market. Um, what do you see are the pros and cons of situating yourself as a venture capitalist outside Silicon Valley or Boston? At High Peaks, we, we invested in upstate New York, which, which I describe as a second-tier market, uh, meaning it's not a hub of activity uh, for venture capital. And so here's how I think about this. I'm going to tell you a little story about country music. Right? So let's say you wanted to be a country music musician. So would you try to launch and start your career in uh, Rochester, New York, or Milwaukee, Wisconsin? You could, and, and you might get some traction there. However, what you really want to do is you want to go to the hub of country music. You want to go to Nashville. Now, this does a couple of different things for you. Number one, there's a huge infrastructure that's in place to support your endeavor if you're in country music, number one. Number two, you will also quickly get a view of how good you really are because there's a lot of competition there. So it can be quite a humbling experience, but also that's a great way for you to improve because you may be the very best country music musician in Milwaukee, but you're only the 50th best in Nashville and you're competing on a national scale. So it's important to know that. So the same thing is true in sort of venture capital, right? I think if you're an entrepreneur, you want to go to the hub 
of where that activity is in your industry. So, you know, Boston has sort of a different uh, entrepreneurial makeup than New York City, uh, than the Valley, than Austin. So you got to figure out where it is. And I suggest you figure out how to get there and you hang out there because just by being there, you're going to absorb a lot of great information. You're going to see how this all works and you're going to quickly be in a very competitive environment and see how good your actual business idea or concept is. And, and then you can improve on it and you can make it better. It'll drive you to, to become better. And so the same, we learned that same lesson in, in venture capital investing, right? We discovered that the fishing in upstate New York ponds wasn't that great and there was a lot more fish in New York City. So we slowly migrated the fund down there because we had a much more rich investment opportunities down there. Um, so that's my two cents on that. Well, let me ask you a follow-up question, Bela. So, like, you didn't necessarily want to go live in New York City, and I understand that completely. But sometimes, when you're an entrepreneur, you can't access those hub cities. So, if you're an entrepreneur in a smaller city, a second-tier, third-tier, fourth-tier kind of place, who serves those smaller cities in terms of access to capital? How do entrepreneurs connect with funding in these places? Yeah, so that's a great question, Mike. So, all of those places have various different organizations that invest. So th there are venture capital firms in upstate New York. Mm -hmm. um, they're a small number. They typically do seed investing. So they'll give you that first $100,000, first $500,000. And then their goal is, is by, by you taking that money and, and making some progress to then to be able to attract investors from New York City or, or Boston to come in and, and, and give you that three or four or $5 million that you might need to grow your business. So they're, they're truly kind of seed uh, investors. So they do exist. There's not that many of them, and you need to reach out to them and find them. You can find them. The other thing is, in, in most of these second-tier markets, uh, the various different municipalities, whether they be at the state level or the city level, also have sources of capital that, that they can give you access to. Sometimes that's in the form of a grant. Sometimes that's in the form of a loan. But there is that capital. It's a little more difficult, right? You got to dig a little bit more. But, the, but if you think about it, the actual uh, numbers are the same. And what I mean by that is, you know, Brad talked about in their small firm, a primary, which is not a large venture capital firm, their fund size is about $100 million, uh, They get 1,000 business plans a year. And he, they invest in six or seven or eight, I think he said. When we were focused on upstate New York, we got about 200 business plans a year, uh, and we invested in three or four. So the, the, the investment ratio is about the same, if you think about it. Uh, so the odds are about the same. So there are sources of capital. I'm not saying you have to move to these areas, but I would certainly go hang out in one of those areas for a while because it's going to make you smarter. You're going to absorb stuff, right? You're going you're gonna to hang out with other people who are in the same industry, and it's going to be a great way for you to sort of figure out how your product and fits into the marketplace. So you don't necessarily have to, yeah, you don't necessarily have to live there, right. right? And relocate there, but you better go hang out there. You better go subscribe to the local business paper, right? You better, you better go to some uh, entrepreneurial events there a couple times a year. There are, there's events, there's incubators that you can apply to. There's accelerators that are, some are a matter of weeks, some are a matter of months, right? But there's all kinds of programs that you can apply to and, yeah. 
and go. Some of them, it costs money. Some of them are for free. Some of them take an equity stake in the company. There's different models, but that's a nice way, low risk way to go and yeah, kind of temporarily camp out and build a network and learn. Absolutely. That's a great, yeah, I forgot all about incubators. Uh, Shame on me. And uh, that's another great thing is, is some of these incubators will do it, uh, quote unquote, virtually, right? So they, in essence, provide some of their support and services and connections, and you don't have to physically be a, in residence there all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. But look for the mixed ones. I know a couple of these all online ones, and it's just like online education. When it's all online, I'm a little bit skeptical. That's the best. If that's all you can do for a variety of reasons. Great. It serves a purpose. But if you can actually physically get there and hang out and have coffee with people and rub shoulders with people and learn, it's just a richer experience, right, to do it. And this hybrid model can be great for some people, right? You go spend a couple of weekends and then you have some things that you do during the week and things like that. So I've seen some models of, of both of these. But um, but yeah, the learning is important. But yeah, it's really important to note, though, like you said, there's these seed capital funds and even in, the, in small cities that can be a bridge um, that if your idea does have merit, that you can you can get a, some initial funding locally or regionally, and then you bridge up to the bigger amounts in the hub cities. All right. Cool. Uh, another question. Um, you know, Brad talked about not going to VCs if you can help it. And this is something that I've always believed in, that the cost of, um, of the money is high and the control that you give up is high, but it has a lot of upside too, right? In terms of the network and helping you find talent and all these things that Brad talked about, um, that it was cool that, yeah, he's differentiating and specializing in New York City businesses um, and providing firms with or startups with resources in the New York City region. But what do you think the alternatives are? So if you say, okay, I'm going to try to avoid a VC for whatever reason, what are the alternatives to VCs for helping your business grow? Part of this, the, the question is, how much capital do you need? As you start getting into larger and larger larger amounts of capital, you may have to go to the VC route, but let's say you don't. Uh, So there are lots of municipalities that have various different grants uh, and loans available to spur sort of regional business growth. So that's a place you got to go knock on those doors. There are also, you know, angel investors. Uh, Here again, there's high net worth individuals who, who want to put some money back into the system, so to speak, right? They want to give back. And uh, so they, they uh, make investments in, in, in early stage companies to help them grow. Uh, so there's lots of opportunities there. Crowdfunding, right, is kind of a hot one now. Crowdfunding where people pre-sell their products, essentially, if it's a product or a service that you can sell. That's another kind of emerging area of financing. And there's some, uh, it's not always legal in all places, right? But the idea of actually crowdsourcing equity, right, is a, an emerging field as well, right. where you can buy actual shares. When you do something like Kickstarter, you're just buying a product. You're not buying a share or anything like that. And there's no guarantee that you'll even get the product. Um, but in some of these crowdsourced equity uh, sources, you can actually buy a piece of the company. Right. Right. And I go back to what I what I said earlier. You know, The best way to raise money is to sell your product. So yep. if you can figure out a way to get an early prototype of your product out there and, you know, don't worry about making money on it, the first, the first bunch, uh, but just get them out there, get them in customers' hands, and get them, get them using the product. Yep, um, and some of these loan programs and loan projects, some angel investors will, will do as a loan, right? Um, and, and, you know, a loan is nice because it's a, yeah, you have to pay it back and you have to personally co-sign for it, and they're not going to be a lot of money, but you don't give up control of the company. Right, 
Right. And and I think, you know, here's here's a, an example of growing a business and coming to the realization that geographically we were at a disadvantage being where we were. So we moved the business to New York City. And by moving the business to New York City, again, immersing ourselves in that environment within that network and within that venture capital community, we got better, right? Brad has been able to build the business very successfully. He's done a fabulous job, he and Ben, uh, in growing this business. And I and go back to our previous podcast uh, with Andy Shell, right? He sort of did the same thing. First, he immersed himself into the sailing industry and he, he got well-connected and knew all about the various different folks and people, et cetera, in the sailing industry before he's, he blazed off on sort of starting his own business there. So there's a good lesson here, right? There's this notion of sometimes in certain businesses where you are geographically or how immersed you are within that industry sector is really, really important. Other times it's less so, but sometimes it's really important. So make that a conscious decision as you think about this, right? Say, say to yourself, okay, it's important that I'm, I'm, and I'm located at a certain place, or you know what, for the business I'm in, I can be anywhere. It doesn't matter. But you should think about that at least and, and not just let it sort of happen by happenstance. Agreed. What do you think, Bela? Time to wrap it up? Yeah, let's wrap this one up, Mike. All right. So the takeaways today is, I mean, let's start with what you just said, is this idea of time and place can be really important and neglected at your peril, right? There are some businesses where you don't need to be immersed in a physical place with a network of people that you are interacting with face-to-face. Uh, but in lots of businesses, it's it's critical. Um, and And know which type of business you're about to be involved in and do it's it's never going to hurt you to go and get to know people and get to learn things firsthand feet on the ground really really important i know it's not always possible for all people but i think that's a great takeaway from today um second when you think about the vc businesses it's very competitive and it's a commodity business as you pointed out bela it's one where um everybody's money is equally the same there's no difference uh in the the actual money that you get it's who you get it from that matters and there's a lot of risk involved. The cost of founders is high. There's a lot of expectations. So this idea of differentiation, and um, Brad really pointed out very several very cool ways that, um, that he's differentiating his startup, his company, uh, to make it valuable to customers and to make it fit the marketplace. Um, so I think those themes are really important. And we've talked about both these themes before, this idea of differentiation and this, uh, this idea of kind of place and time and being uh, physically engaged and involved in the location. Um, but we haven't talked about it in the context of VC firms. And people always think about, oh, VC is, is how we get the money and how entrepreneurs you know, get funded. But as a business in and of themselves, this was a fascinating look kind of behind the curtain in a sense. So I thought this was great. Thanks for an enlightening conversation that you had with Brad. I appreciate it, Bella. Yeah, it was fun to reconnect with Brad and uh, have that conversation. Neat. Well, listeners, we're happy that you joined us once again in our podcasting adventure, and we hope you find the last hour interesting and thought-provoking. At this point, we'd like to once again thank Philips Lytle LLP for sponsoring our podcast. If you need good, solid advice starting, funding, or selling a business, whether you're a single-person startup or working on a nine-figure exit, Bela and I confidently recommend the attorneys at Philips Lytle. Bela, what's the best way for listeners to get in touch with them? So the person to contact is Rich Honan, who is a Philips Lytle partner. And you can reach him at 518-618-1225 or via email at rhonan, 
at philipslidle.com. And you can always find his contact information in our show notes. Listeners, thanks for joining us this week. If you have questions about what we've discussed, suggestions about future topics or potential guests, please do get in touch with us. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And please do subscribe if you haven't already. We have lots of great guests in the pipeline. So until next week, signing off from upstate New York. Have a great week, Mike. Sounds great, Bela. That's it from over here in Munster, Germany. Listeners, thanks and bye-bye.